listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Again, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at South Point. Um, I typically um, pastor in and among the people in, in McDonough, South Point McDonough, and I'm delighted to be here with you this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 24. Just as Chris prayed, um, I, I like to every once in a while see that we understand what is going on in that prayer before the sermon. Obviously, we're praying for uh, the preacher uh, that God would fill me in this moment with boldness, that his spirit would overwhelm me, that you might hear um, the words of truth this morning. But also, we, w- we want to make sure that we're not staying just in our little bubble of, of South Point, Locust Grove, or South Point McDonough. We, w- we want to make sure that, that that's what's going on. And so we pray, we try to regularly pray for another local church. Sometimes people are like, hey, you know, what's going on at the church that you prayed for this morning? I'm like, we don't have anything we don't have anything that we know about. We, we just want to pray for them that the gospel would continue to go forth there as well. And, uh, and then we also want to pray for one of the missionaries that our church, you all, uh, as a collective family, support regularly on a monthly basis. So we want to make sure that you're, that you're praying for them, that we're doing that together. And then we've added in every month or so, we, we want to take our eyes onto the nations as well. And so we've added a people group that has little or no access to the gospel. And so that's what, uh, that's what you're hearing in that prayer every week. I just want you to be aware of that as, as, as someone stands up here and pray and prays, um, pray, pray alongside as well as the spirit would have you. So again, open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 14, verses one through 24. And if you're able, wherever you are, would you stand with me? Um, some of you know this about me. I, I enjoy standing in honoring of uh, reading the reading of God's word. And we're just going to read the first 14 verses to begin with one Sabbath. When he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, I I want us to see an overarching picture this morning is this. Disciples of Jesus have hearts that have been changed to reflect the kingdom of God. If there's something that you walk away this morning understanding, it is that. Disciples of Jesus have hearts that have been changed to reflect the kingdom of God. But... Even in these first six verses that we've already read this morning, we're not looking at hearts that have been changed or hearts that reflect the kingdom of God, are we? No. Uh, In fact, Jesus uses three examples in the text this morning of hearts that do not reflect him and his kingdom to get us, his people, to understand something about the kingdom. 
The first example of a heart that doesn't reflect the kingdom is one that seeks to self-justify. In the text that we just read, verses 1 to 6, I want us to do some observing, uh, just that we would be Bible students together as we're looking at these first six verses, just so we can get a feel for the context of the passage. So one of the first questions that I think that we can ask as we study the Bible is, when? When is this passage taking place? What, What day is it? Anybody? The Sabbath day, one Sabbath. Now, just for us to understand within the book of Luke, this is the third and final Sabbath healing. And we've already, we've already talked about one. We'll, we'll get there in just a second, back in chapter 13. But the Sabbath on Saturday is the one day of week that the Lord's people were commanded to rest and to devote to the worship of God alone. It was a day that was particularly strictly observed by the Pharisees, the most conservative religious body of the Jews. Now, when it's on the Sabbath, that's, that's when we're reading this passage, where is Jesus? Anybody? Where? Yeah, so that, that's where. Now, more specifically... He's at where? He's at a house of a Pharisee, and not just any Pharisee. What kind of Pharisee? The ruler of the Pharisees. So, so we're drilling down in. We're on a Sabbath day. We're at the house of a Pharisee, the ruler of the Pharisees. This isn't just any house. This is a really big deal. He's at a dinner party on the Sabbath day. And I do want us to notice, I think oftentimes we talk about how Jesus often dines with sinners, that he's spending time with tax collectors, that he's spending time with those that the rest of society have already pushed away and pushed to the margins. But here, Jesus even spends time not only with the blatant sinners, but he spends time with the subtle sinners, the Pharisees, those whose actions look good, but whose hearts are just as wicked and deceitful. And he still ministers among them as well. And finally, I want us to ask that question, what exactly is happening? Now, we see in the text here that the Pharisees are doing what to him? What do you see? What? watching him. They're they're looking at this man, Jesus, very intently. Now, for those of you new to Bible study, we want to first look at our immediate context. What's before? What's happening before? What's happening after this passage? And lo and behold, chapter 13 gives us a reason as to why the Pharisees are looking at Jesus as intently as they are. There, um, if if you're in the Bible with me, chapter 13, verse 10 we see that Jesus had been teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, woman, you are freed from your disability. Jesus performs a miracle. A woman is now healed and she gives all the credit and glory to God. But the Pharisees have something to say about that, don't they? They typically always have something to say about everything, which is so, what's so unique about chapter 14. We'll get there in just a second. But verse 14, chapter 13, the ruler of the synagogue was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath and said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. And not on the Sabbath day. Jesus answers him, watch this, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? 
And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Can you imagine the scene that they find themselves in? Here's a woman who's been crippled for 18 years. She gets healed. And instead of the Pharisees being wowed at the miracle that they've just encountered or awestruck at what's going on, they are complaining that Jesus didn't wait until the next day. That's crazy. That's wild. There's the ones who assumed that they were loving the law of God with their whole being were missing out on the true purpose and spirit of God's law. Back to chapter 14. Here's what we know. We're at a dinner party. It's the Sabbath. They're at a ruler of the Pharisees' house where everyone is watching Jesus to see exactly what he's going to do. And the text says, behold, there was a man before him with what? Dropsy. Now, dropsy was this condition where pockets of fluid would build up in, in, in different parts of the body. It was physically obvious that this was a suffering man. We don't know why this man with dropsy was there. This was a Pharisee's house, the ruler of the Pharisees. Only, only the most elite of society were here in this minute. Some people conjecture that the man with dropsy was a plant by the Pharisees. They just wanted to see exactly what Jesus was going to do. The Pharisees are certainly interested. And so Jesus, knowing all of the hearts of men in that room, and knowing that all eyes are on him asks a brilliant question in verse 3. And he says this, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? I, I know exactly what happened on the last time we got together and you saw this. You said, man, you should have waited till the next day. But I, I want to I ask you a question. Is it lawful or not to heal on the Sabbath? Sabbath? This time, they know better than to say what they think. So what do they do? They remain silent, and he heals the man with dropsy, and he sends him out. Before we start thinking that their silence means that they've learned the New Testament principle that James tells us about of taming the tongue, the reality is that the miracle was supposed to provoke them to compassion has actually revealed that they have hearts that are far from God. You see, they were supposed to see that Jesus took a man who was obviously suffering in their midst, and he made him a whole individual. He didn't have the suffering that he once had. And the Pharisees were supposed to, in that moment, fall on their knees and give glory to God the Father, who is creator and sustainer and sovereign over, over and above all things. And yet they couldn't say a thing, proving that their hearts had not been changed to reflect the kingdom of God. We aren't looking at hearts here that reflect the kingdom. No, these are hearts that reflect the values of the God of this world, Satan, our adversary. Verse 5, and Jesus said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Everybody can identify with this scenario, right? Who's not going to do that? We've heard this line before. Jesus said, here's the deal, Pharisees. Think long and hard before you answer this one. You'll do for yourselves on the Sabbath day. 
You, you'll, you'll get someone out that needs your help as long as it is good for your ends. But for those you don't care to serve, all of a sudden it becomes unlawful. If your ox or your son gets hurt, you'll take care of them immediately. And rightly so, by the way. But Jesus wants them to see that they've missed the point of the Sabbath in doing so. They've missed an opportunity to reflect the beautiful nature of the kingdom of God in this moment. Yes, you are to rest, but in resting, you are to worship the living and true God who is before you, the God who's standing before you and healing in front of you. In the midst of these religious people, you see, Jesus is not afraid to stoop in care for the man with dropsy, care for his own people. Verse six, it says this, and they could not reply to these things. The God who breathed out the very words here in the Holy Bible didn't do it though. So we would be able to see the Pharisees' hearts on full display and think, I would never do anything like that. Never in my life would I find myself at a dinner party, laughing at a man who had a physical condition and upon seeing him healed, say nothing about it. I would never do that. That's not why this is in the text though, is it? It's not so that we would just look and say, man, the Pharisees are ridiculous individuals. I can't believe that they would do such a thing. We are supposed to hear this story. We're supposed to read it. We're supposed to internalize it. We're supposed to feel the gravity and feel two things, one of two things. God, I want so badly for my heart to reflect the kingdom of God. And if it is to, I know that the only way that it will is that Jesus would divine divinely intervene on my behalf, making it that I could. Or second, I'm like the Pharisees. God, I care more about cleaning the outside of the cup than the inside, desiring to look good on the outside for everyone to see and yet wicked within. And God, I need you to intervene. That is the reason that this story is here, that we might see one of those two things in our life. Either God the only way that I could ever show compassion that reflects the heart of the kingdom is because you've intervened on my behalf. Or second, I need you to intervene on my behalf because I realize I look just like the Pharisees. You see, there's, there's no other option. Jesus tells us about hearts to self-justify so that we would not look around at everyone else like the Pharisees did, but so that we would look inside that we would look within, we would look to our hearts, not so that we would fix our eyes like the Pharisees did on Jesus. What is he gonna do? How is he gonna perform? What law is he gonna break on the Sabbath? But so that we would find ourselves wondering, God, have you given me a heart of compassion? Have you given me one that cares for the least in, in my midst? Have you given me, have you changed my heart? Have you taken this heart of stone and given me a heart of flesh so that I might rightly reflect the values of the kingdom of God here on earth? Disciples of Jesus, when they are called on their sin, do you know what they do? They repent. We repent. And we repent often because we often realize that we are finding ourselves in sinful ways and sinful patterns. There's no need for self-justification in the kingdom of God. 
Jesus calls the Pharisees on their hearts, and what do they do? Do they repent? No, they remain silent. They remain silent. They've done their justifying. Back in 13, they explained their position. Now Jesus calls them on it, and they can't and won't say a thing. So the heart that Jesus is looking to change seeks to self-justify. The second example of a heart that doesn't reflect the kingdom is one that seeks to, to exalt itself, verses 7 to 11. Now, we get into what your Bible might have labeled the parable of the wedding feast. Anybody's Bible say that above the, the header there? Yeah, a few of you. Look into the text beginning at verse 7 with me. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is one of my favorite ways that Je Jesus teaches. I love it when he finds himself in a situation and he says, you know what? I'm going to tell you a parable about the situation that you're in right now. And I'm going to use every bit of the story to tell it to you. And then you just decide for yourselves if that is what's going on here, okay? So you see exactly what's happening. Here's how it goes. You, you know that you've all been watching me. Everybody knows that. I feel it. We, you've all just been staring right at me. Well, I too have been watching you. That's the point of this parable. Jesus also is looking at all of them, and here's what I've observed. You walked into this dinner party, you looked up and down at this man who is suffering with dropsy, and you kept on walking to a more honorable seat. Just to give you an idea of the seating arrangement in this type of dinner, it would have been a, a large U uh, at, at an ancient dinner. And uh, a U-shaped formation with low tables, and there would be groups of three that would just be kind of reclining. You see other places in the New Testament that it says that they were reclining at table. This is because they did this strange, like, you know, kneeling on their, you know, I don't know. They just did some weird stuff eating back then, you know. I, I much prefer sitting at a table, sliding up to the seat, you know, eating your dinner there. Put your elbows if you want, but, you know, they used to really do the elbow thing. Back, back in that kind of dinner party, okay? So that's what's happening here. And these guys moved right past the man with dropsy all the way to the front or as close as they could get. The host would sit at the base of the U with the most honored guest on his right and left. And that would continue all the way until the last seats. And sometimes they were left for those that would come in late. This is pretty simple and Jesus says to understand Proverbs 25, six and seven says it like this. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great for it is better to be told come up here than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Jesus says you all rush to find the honorable seats when what you should have done was the exact opposite. 
Sit at the lowest seat. That way, when the host comes in, he can look at you at the bottom and say, friend, you should come and sit with me. Much better than the alternative situation. Whereas he sees you sitting closer than you should to the most important person at the dinner. And he says, he's not going to say, hey, do you mind everybody if y'all could just scoot on down? No, what's he going to say? Go on, go on to the back. Go on to the back. Anyone ever enjoy being the line leaner in elementary school? Maybe there's some kids. It's like, man, I remember that really, really well. I loved being the line leader. And oftentimes, man, I'm rushing up. I'm, I imagine I pushed a kid or two, you know, back in the day. And you're trying to do everything you possibly can to be a line leader. And some of you are like, I've never pushed anybody. I never wanted to be in the limelight. Man, I wanted to be at the front of the line. Okay. And every once in a while, if you, if you do something to get to the front and the teacher sees you, man, what are they going to say? They're not going to say, Chris, you know, just, just scoot back. This person can get the front. No, go to the back of the line. So all the kids in the class just have to stare at you like, man, I'm going to get it next time though. It's a, it's a humility, humiliating experience. And you can imagine in front of the most elite in society, all of the religious leaders in the day are looking at you when, when the host of the party says, head on back, head on back. Do you know what a self-exalting heart is communicating before the father? God, you will not exalt me so I must exalt myself. No one else in this world, no one else in my life is telling, the, telling me things that I need to hear that I want to hear about how good I am or how deserving I am. So I must exalt myself. God, you're not giving me the job at, in my current workplace that you know that I deserve. So I'm going to do things. I'm going to manipulate people. I'm going to do things so that I would get to the top. You won't provide for me in the way that I think you should, so I must scheme and work to get myself higher. Friends, how has that worked for you in the workplace? Have you, have you manipulated situations and people so that you would be noticed and thought of as more highly? Have you, in thinking that you don't want to manipulate, grown bitter towards those who don't see your value, who don't recognize your importance? Children, do you find yourself upset with mom and dad for not recognizing you and the amazingness that you are in your home? You're afraid that no one is noticing, that no one cares to look at you. You know what the beautiful thing of the gospel is? Is that we always know that we serve Jehovah El Roy, the God who sees. He sees everything. You see, the Pharisees thought that they were finding themselves at a dinner to stare at Jesus to see what he does. But Jesus flips it, doesn't, doesn't he? He says, I see all of you and I know the deepest depths of your heart. I know you. I know you. For the Christian, it is good news that God always has his eye on us. Why? Because he will bring us up in due time. It may not look like when you expected. It may not be on the goal sheet that you set for your life, but he certainly will bring you up in due time. First Peter chapter five, verse five and six says this, clothe yourselves, 
all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he might exalt you. Again, our text this morning, chapter 14, verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, Jesus isn't giving us a way uh, to have the proper dinner, dinner etiquette. That's not what he's doing here. He's not giving us worldly advice to make us better dinner guests. No, he desires a heart that would reflect the kingdom of God. And a heart that reflects the kingdom of God desires genuine humility. It's worth noting that Jesus was the only one in this scenario that actually knew his real worth on this earth. And what was Jesus worthy of? All honor, all glory, all power. He was worthy enough that everyone in that room would have their eyes fixated on him and that they would come and they would bow down at that man right there. He was the only one that knew his actual value, that he was worthy of all of that, worthy of all the praise of mankind, worthy of constant adoration, and yet... What was Jesus' posture? Was he a proud man? He walked with humility. He walked with humility. Philippians chapter 2, a familiar passage to many of us. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And guess what? What does the father do with his humble son? No, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And yet, we wanna be seen how we think we deserve to be seen. Christian, be careful not to make your reputation an idol. There are so many people to please on this earth too many for that matter. Please God. And God is pleased through faith in Christ with a humble and contrite heart, the scripture says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Just how deep does our desire to be a successful man run? To get to the top, unchecked, left unsubmitted to God, it can inform how we live our lives. It can inform how we share our time. It can inform how we spend our money. It can inform how we keep our heart and it can even inform who we invite to dinner. And at this point in the text, Jesus transitions from speaking to the guests, to the host, verses 12 through 14. Look there in the text with me. He says, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid 
at the resurrection of the just. The third thing a heart that is not reflecting the kingdom of God does is it seeks reciprocation. Here's what Jesus does here. At least I know what he's challenged the original hearer on and certainly my own heart. He flips the idea or at least our modern idea of hospitality on its head, doesn't he? Now, the social, social scene of the day was this. The, the host would invite other people so that those who would be able to pay him back someday would, perhaps politically or socially or religiously even. I have you over now, so you'll have me over or have my back at another time, and we'll just keep that game up. This idea isn't too far removed from us, is it? Hey, you, you know how it goes. Like, hey, you pick up meal, I'll cash app you. Or you get it this time, I'll get it next time. You pick the tab up today, I'll do, I'll do it another time. We know how that goes, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But here's what Jesus is saying. If your life is always spent with the people that can pay you back, it's not completely, holistically reflecting the values of the kingdom of God. Now, we're to go to those people <coughs> Excuse me, we're to go to those people on this earth who can never repay us. We're to invite those people into our lives, into our homes, into our church that could not repay us. Jesus is interested in the why. He always goes for the heart. I was thinking, thinking about this. Man, Chris, you, you have people over in your house frequently. You can feel good about that. Friends and family are typically over at your house several times a week. But what if your house and your home was filled with people that didn't look like you or who smelled or didn't have stable jobs or who couldn't return the favor, who couldn't cash app you back the money, people that, that could never help you foot the bill? Evaluate your heart on this one, Chris. Speaking of myself here. The blessing comes from the inability to be paid back. If you have over the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, those who are marginalized in society, you will be blessed, Jesus says, because they cannot repay you. Why does the blessing come from the inability to be paid back? Jesus says in verse 14 that there is something greater than cash app. And it's that you will be repaid in the resurrection of the just. You want to know what the best kind of hospitality is? It's not where you've cleaned all Saturday so that your guests can come and have a nice, enjoyable, clean house and eat a good Southern meal. I enjoy that as much as anybody else. But that's not the idea that Jesus is getting at here. The best kind of hospitality is the kind given that can't be exchanged. The kind that goes to the stranger, not the familiar. And this looks exactly like the gospel, doesn't it? Because Jesus Christ, who is worthy of all glory, honor, and power, left his heavenly throne, came and lived a perfect life, dwelt among sinful people, he died a criminal's death on the cross. He exchanged his life that was perfect 
for that of sinners. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He was buried and on the third day he was resurrected again. And Jesus came for you who could never get to him on your own. That's the gospel, right? That's, that's what he's trying to say here. Your home should not look different than the gospel that I came to preach to you. It should be filled with people who could never repay you. Christian, look to serve those who can't serve you in return. The blessing is all the better. Just practically, our community is ripe with opportunities. If the father's heart is for his children not to seek reciprocation, then shouldn't we ask, what does it look like to invite the least of these into my life? I just want to challenge you as you gather in life groups this week, ask that question, what would it look like to invite the least of these into this life group? What would it look like for our church to invite the least of these in? Finally, the heart that Jesus changes will look like the kingdom of God. Verses 15 through 24. Verse 15, look there in the text with me. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. Such a weird response. It's like the only thing that is said at this banquet is from one guy. And I can only speculate as to his tone, but it's almost as he, as if he hears everything Jesus has to say, he picks up on a couple of word and he says this theological platitude. Like, this is a good thing. Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God with the meaning going in one ear and out the other. Yes, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Hear, hear. It sounds strange, doesn't it? Right? Like, what is this guy saying? But the context helps us. We're being taken in that moment, or at least we should be, to Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9, where we see the coming of the kingdom in terms of a feast where God is doing something spectacular there. It's not as though he is giving us a dinner like we haven't ever had before, although he is. But here, instead of the food being the main course, he is removing the pain and disgrace from his people. Who knows if the man is really excited for this? He should be. It could be that he just wants to impress the rabbi before him. Regardless, Jesus wants to use this opportunity to help point people to life in the kingdom. So Jesus tells one last story so that anyone could hear would. And the spirit in which Jesus communicates is it communicates it is. You want to talk about the kingdom? Let me tell you what it looks like. Look there in verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. 
Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. It kind of sounds like Jesus switched subjects, doesn't it? Because at this dinner party, the host has prepared a guest list. He's made his invites. He sent his servant to go out and let everyone on the list know that the meal is now ready. Hey, it's time. We sent those we sent those, uh, you know, invite cards out a long time ago, save the dates. You've all had it on your refrigerators for a long time now. You've got a Facebook invite. Now it's time. It's ready. It's here. And they all begin to make excuses. No one comes. One commentator said, they all probably think they're in good standing with the man who invited them and can presume upon their position with him. So how does the story that he just told relate to the scenario that Jesus finds himself in? Because there are plenty of people at the party where Jesus is. Jesus watched the seats fill up. Hey, look at the people that you've sat down with. You haven't invited anyone, not one single person that can't repay you unless you brought the man with dropsy here and planted him for me. But besides that, everyone here can repay you the guy can get you a better job that's sitting next to you. His, his wife's dad is prominent in that company. The guy sitting next to you on the other side owns lo lots of investment properties. This is, a, this is a good deal. The man across from you is a prominent lawyer in the town. This is, this is exactly how you've arranged everything. Besides the guy with dropsy, who you seem to have invited to see what Jesus would do, the poor aren't here. <clears throat> Excuse me. The sick aren't here. So what's he communicating? Brothers and sisters, this banquet that Jesus is talking about now is the kingdom of God fully realized. It's exactly as God will have it on the final day. And it won't be made up of the people that you and I would suspect. It won't be made up of everyone who have their religious eyes and eyes dotted and T's crossed. It will be made up of those on the fringes of society. And Jesus is inviting them in. Those that you think would be anxious to come to participate in the glory of the eternal kingdom are the ones that have all the excuses. The rich young ruler, anxious to know what he needed to do to inherit eternal life, he assures Jesus, remember, that he's followed every one of his commandments. And then Jesus says, good, go and give everything you have to the poor. And what does the man do? He walks away sad. He couldn't give it up. The kingdom of God will be filled with those who have nothing to give. So if you're in the kingdom, remember that you had nothing to give. You didn't make it here because you were a shining star on planet earth. And you had all of the religious awards. Remember, it's because of God's incredible mercy that he came for you. He found you when you had nothing. In fact, Jesus died for you, the scripture says, when you are in sin. 
You had only sin to stain you and sever your standing with God, but Christ in his mercy, he redeemed you with his blood. And so in him, what you have, you have to give away. That's the difference now. May that be our reorienting theme, family. My time, if I have any, it's not my own. My resources, they aren't mine to use as I would want to. They're mine to use as God would instruct me. My home, it's yours, God. Our life group, use it for your glory in your kingdom, Father. In closing, I want, I want you to hear this quote from Tabidi Anuili. The ultimate antidote to that king of glory hunger that kind of glory hunger is finding your meaning and your honor in being the recipient of Jesus's sacrificial love. When your heart is captivated by the way that God has made much of you by sending his son to save you, you will begin to be freed from living for the recognition of others. You see, disciples of Jesus have hearts that reflect the kingdom of God. Let's pray. 